I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. It is Friday, which means it's time for our long overdue Front 3 podcast. You're Front 3 today. It's me, Adam Butwood, back again, like a renegade master or something. Uh, Nico Morales is here as well. How you doing, Adam? I'm doing very well. How are you? I'm doing all right. It's a, it's a good day to be on a podcast with, with you and Chris, right? Is it a good day to be a Manchester City fan? We'll talk about that, though, uh, in a moment. <laughs> uh, Chris Hennage is here as well. Chris, how you doing? Bringing D4 damage power to the people. Nice, well done, well done. Uh, guys, thank you so much for listening to The Front Free. It has been a while. We've all been incredibly busy. Unfortunately, that's meant we haven't been able to actually record a podcast all together, even three of us together. Um, we are back today, though. Um, but as I said, it's been an incredibly busy period. You might see myself and Lawrence working on a new YouTube project called XO, along with Drew Geordie, Stephen Tries, Will and E. We're also working with Ball Street on their content as well. So, yeah, incredibly busy. But luckily today, not too busy to come and record a podcast for you guys because, guys, it is the UEFA Champions League quarterfinal draw day. And we've also got your questions to answer. Before we get into that, though, it is time for the reviews, as always, on a Q&A podcast. Um, so many great reviews. Five, in fact. Um, there is only one winner, I have to say, this week. But thank you so much for Javan Beek from the United States for his five-star review. Drew Dempsey, also from the United States, for his five-star rating. And Grego the Baker from our very own United Kingdom uh, for his five-star A Must Listen review. Um, there was one review in particular. I loved everything about it. The title, but loving it. The rating, five stars. The author, Baldwin's Daddy from Australia. Uh, and his review simply said, two podcasts ago, Chris mispronounced, pronounced. Um, not sure I remember that one, but um, a great review nonetheless from Baldwin's Daddy. Uh, but there is only one winner this week. As I said, it is Maya United, who gave us a five-star review on iTunes. And they said, we love listening to the front three in the car on my way home from school with my Manchester United mad daughter, 12. We have great discussion and laughs with you as we traverse the coastal roads of Koh Samui in Thailand. Thanks for the insights. If this is a Ferrero Rocher moment, please give it to a random homeless person you meet in the street. Thank you. But isn't it time you made front three t-shirts to send out instead? Spread the word, Mike and Maya on a tropical island in Thailand. Uh, what a lovely review. What a beautiful image. Mike and Maya along those coastal roads in Koh Samui in Thailand. Idyllic. Listen to the front three. What could be better? 
So thanks so much for your review, My United. You have won yourself Miss Rare Rocher. We'll spread the love. We'll give them to someone who deserves it. Um, but thank you so much for that five-star review. Guys, if you want to be in with a chance to be in the whole of the week, next week all you have to do is rate and review the front three on iTunes. So get involved. With all that said and done, let's move swiftly on to the football, guys. The UCL draw was earlier today a very exciting draw. We've got Liverpool versus Manchester City, Juventus v Real Madrid, and Sevilla v Bayern, as well as Barcelona against Roma. Uh, very interesting ties, Nico. Uh, immediately after the draw, you seem to tweet out, welcome to the Champions League semi-finals, Liverpool. That, Nico, is a steaming hot take. Justify yourself. Yeah, because I think it's it's really the one club that Manchester City didn't want to draw. I mean, it's it's kind of cliche to say, okay, this is one of the only teams that has beaten Manchester City this year, and quite convincingly so, despite the you know last ten minutes of that game. Um, but yeah, it, it is the team that I didn't want to draw because I knew they have the ability to beat uh, Manchester City pretty convincingly to what is, as we know, to be their best. And what I mean by that is. Obviously, Manchester City beat them 5-1, I think, earlier in the season, but there was a red card in that game. The difference there was that Benjamin Mendy was fit, and that's kind of where I, I think where this, this tie kind of takes a turn. If Benjamin Mendy can be fit, that allows Manchester City to play an entirely different formation with kind of entirely different roles for, for different players. If you looked in the first 20 minutes of that first match uh, for Liverpool against Manchester City, there was a lot of ball progression up the flanks because of the the added presence in the middle because of that, ex- that extra central defender because uh, City essentially played a 3-5-2. So but, uh, players like Benjamin Mendy and Kyle Walker keep the width wide. They have a variety of options in the middle if Liverpool will try to compensate for that with like a 4-5-1 kind of defensive formation. Um, so that really is the only option for Manchester City. The difficulty is is that we haven't seen Manchester City play that because Benjamin Mendy tore his ACL. He is back in training from what I've seen from the City reports and stuff, but I don't think he's fully fit yet. Um, but I think if he is fully fit for this tie, that's a better hope for City. But even then, mm. you have to be a really exceptional team to do what Liverpool did across any span of time uh, in, in the game that they beat them 4-3. Three, but I kind of look at it as a four-one, um, and and so yeah, I mean, ideally, even Real Madrid or, or Juventus, I think would be a better tactical matchup for Manchester City because they don't have, especially Juventus, they don't really have the ability to press Manchester City in the way Liverpool do. But there's really only one team in the world and really only one manager that has been so successful in implementing a style against such a you know iconic possession-oriented team like Pep Guardiola and, and a manager like him. So it's really the one team that I didn't want, and, and that's why I think Liverpool will probably go through across a few legs. On Twitter, am I the only one who thinks Klopp will knock out Man City in the Champions League, depending on what happens at the empty ad? Because I reckon Liverpool get the result at Anfield. As Nico says there, Chris, Klopp could be the deciding factor uh, in beating this City team. Are you back in Liverpool as well? I feel like a lot of people have got them as favourites in this tie. I can certainly make a strong case for it. Um, you look at the the league meetings between the two, there's, there's an 8-4 swing for City, which, again, on paper looks great. I don't know if Liverpool would be as naive as to make the kind of mistake they did at the end, Etihad and, and essentially see Sadio Mane make a a fairly rash challenge and, and get sent off. I think they'll be a lot cannier than that. Um, and, I, and I think, yeah, this is the key thing that for me is, is true of the Champions League in general. You look at 
the way Real Madrid advanced past Tottenham, you look at the way you, uh, Juventus advanced past Tottenham, excuse me, the way Real Madrid overcame PSG. Those were both instances where a team weathered a, a sort of period of, of dominance of their opposition, came out of it without being blown away or anything like that, and then essentially turned the tide and, and managed to, to go through. And I think that ability to sort of deal with the, the roughest part of the tide in a positive way is, is what often defines these games. And I think you look at the way that City handled that sort of 20, 25 minute spell at Anfield, where Liverpool scored, I think, two, three goals in, in the space of sort of 10, 15 minutes. For me, that was a sign that because City are facing a league situation where a lot of teams aren't engaging them, where a lot of teams aren't standing off, they, they've never been punched in the mouth for, for want of a, an analogy. And it's, it is, it's like that Mike Tyson uh, line that everyone has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. And I think that's kind of where City are at the minute. They've got a fantastic plan that I think intimidates opposition so much that opposition, for the most part, Bristol City, Wolves, maybe Wigan aside, don't really engage. And so when they had to face a team who were A, very talented, and B, willing to engage them in, in quite an aggressive press like Liverpool, it meant they weren't very well suited to it. And I think that's what we'll likely see at, at, at least at some stage in this game, because I think Klopp will be be well aware that it's the only opportunity or the only chance they have of, of beating this Man City side is to go at them in a very aggressive way. Wow, OK. So we're all back in Liverpool, seemingly. Uh, what about some advertising? We've got Juventus. Real Madrid. Interestingly, Real Madrid have been eliminated in all four of their two-legged Champions League ties against Juventus, the last course coming in 2015. Uh, Real Madrid or Juventus, who are you backing in this time, Nico? Um, unfortunately, I'd, I'd probably have to back Real Madrid. I, I think their quality is too great. They have so much experience at this level uh, of the game, especially in the Champions League, that you know we've seen a really poor Real Madrid side in the league uh, relative to you know what we expect of them from year to year. But they, they overcame a pretty good PSG side, regardless of what people's opinions are of them. And I think they'll probably do the same to this Juventus team, not necessarily because this Juventus team is at all bad, but they're not the same team that they once were. I think I was a little, I, I won't say that I was underwhelmed with their performances against Tottenham because obviously they came through, but I was expecting them to go through a little bit more comfortably. Um, and the fact that they didn't kind of, I think it was it was kind of a 50-50 game the the second uh, the second leg and something that if you know few bounces of the ball had gone a different way or or something of the of the other um, you know Tottenham could have been in this position so I think given the fact that Juventus can't um, I don't know I don't think they'll be able to control the tie and Real Madrid will probably come through in the end Real Madrid as well Chris are they the favourites for you in this tie Yeah I I think essentially because of, of what Nico said, I'll put Real Madrid as the favourite. Hmm, OK, uh, moving swiftly on there. Uh, Sevilla Bayern, um, I suppose potentially one of the uh, the better ties in terms of Bayern. Sevilla, though, uh, prove what they can do against Manchester United, Nico. Uh, do you think they can do it again against Bayern, or have Bayern got too much? Bayern have too much. I mean, we talk about this, this Manchester United side um, a lot on this podcast, but I don't think they're necessarily a, a tactically proficient side, especially. And that's the interesting thing about these Champions League games is that it really is a, a, a I mean, it's obvious to say, but it really is a game over 180 minutes. It's a game over two legs. And the second leg definitely did not favor United because they had to go forward and attack. If they had scored in the, in the first leg or whatever it may be and had the ability to control the tie from an aggregate perspective, then you know, it might have favored them, but the tactical setup is almost 
entirely dependent on what happened in the first first leg. Um, and I think in that case, Byron will be able to, to control this because although Sevilla are a good side, I don't think they have the ability to, to even sit back and counter really well on Byron because they have so many options to break you down. James Rodriguez is in really good form again. They have players like Toliso and Kingsley Coleman, who although is out will probably be fit for this tie. They just have too many options. So I'm, I'm favoring Byron on this one. What about the final tie, Chris? Barcelona, Roma. Uh, Barcelona, of course, cruising through against Chelsea in the end. Freedom winning that second leg. Lionel Messi, of course, the standout player, reaching a century of goals in the Champions League now, of course. Is he going to add to that against Roma? Is another fantastic performance going to see them through against the Italian side? I think that's the fascinating thing about Barcelona is that <clears throat> we look at the Chelsea game and say Chelsea weren't terrible. Um, they could have been more clinical. But at the same time, we we almost kind of accepted or came to realise that when Messi is on it, when he wants to, to really grab a game, he can do that. And, and look, it wasn't Courtois' finest night. I think he'll be the first to admit that. And he even did in his, his post-match that because of his size, it means that there is almost always a, a sort of gap um, between his legs that, that makes it hard for him to close. I think, as I said, it, it's such a such a performance from Messi the other night. I know we can get caught in cliche and hyperbole. But it was such a performance that we're not really discussing the fact that Luis Suarez is on a pretty decent goal drought in this competition. And I think if if that's what Messi can do on his own, you have to think, well, what if the rest of the team starts firing? And I think while Roma did very well to, to ride the wave that we talked about just there before when they went away to Shakhtar, I just think Barcelona are a totally different proposition. And I think if if they go in to an away like with that same level of performance, I think they get blown away personally. Well, it sounds like we're back in Barcelona, Bayern Munich, uh, Liverpool, of course, and Real Madrid then in those quarterfinals. Let us know what you think on Twitter, guys, at the front three. I, I do want to dig in a little bit, though, into that Manchester United result. Uh, felt pretty seismic uh, in midweek, of course. As we mentioned, they're getting knocked out by Sevilla. Myself and Lawrence were actually at the game. We managed to blag ourselves some tickets. First time at Old Trafford, when the game was starting, incredible atmosphere. But it quickly and surprisingly for me became quite poisonous given the level of performance that Manchester United displayed. It made me think, Nico, that Jose Mourinho's days are numbered at the club. Of course, it was a, a disastrous result to go out against Sevilla, a team they should have been beating given the resources. And again, it perhaps shows the fallacy of his approach in that first leg. When he short mentioned earlier, they didn't really go for that away goal, which seems to be something that is crucial now in this competition. In terms of Jose Mourinho, though, I mean, we've always talked about him as being a, a short-term appointment for Manchester United. I think the club would accept that, the fans would accept that. Jose Mourinho himself would admit that. But it felt to me like there's not much time for him left at Old Trafford with the patience running out from the fans. That's what I was surprised by, that, yes, we make our judgments about Jose Mourinho. Yes, we think that he's not quite the right man to lead Manchester United into the future. But yet I was surprised by what seemed to be, what appeared to be the fans starting to turn on a manager who they've previously defended because although there aren't the performances that aren't the, 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 the entertaining football that perhaps Manchester City could offer, there have been those results. Now those results aren't coming. Time does seem to be running out for it. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I definitely think so. I think I was telling you kind of pre-record, it was, I was headed into work, so unfortunately I didn't get to see the game live. Um, but it was, I was like, wow, you know, if, if only Manchester United went out against Sevilla, that would be incredible. But it was one of those things that, you know, you kind of brush off as something that probably isn't going to happen. But it did, in fact, happen. <laughs> um, and oh, it you did. are right. It, <laughs> I mean, you are right. That's the thing about these Champions League ties is that, it, whatever I know, a lot of people have um, 
diverse opinions about the value of the away goal and if it's something that should be revisited or reevaluated. But it, it does make a it does make an entertaining tie, and it it does given the format and how people understand it now it does make sense. You know, uh, there is a value to playing at home and there is a certain degree of advantage. Um, so I think you have to play it that way. And, and pretty much, I think at this point in hindsight and hindsight is 2020, you can say that Manchester United lost this tie in the first leg because they had, in order for them to take the, the approach that they wanted to, in order for Jose Mourinho to play the style of football that he knows he can be most successful in implementing with his group of very talented individuals, he had to get the away goal or else the tie was too far up in the air. And Sevilla threatened in that first game. They should have been 1-0 up, bar an amazing save from David De Gea. So, yeah, I mean, I, I would say that it would be difficult to imagine that Jose Mourinho is at Manchester United next season, given the fact, given the expectations that we went into this season. I mean... I wow. think if you think there was he wouldn't, more... he, despite the fact he signed a new contract recently, of course, before. That doesn't mean anything nowadays, Adam. Come on now. <laughs> Do you think he actually won't be there next season? You'd be surprised if he was Manchester United. Well, but look at the progression of things. This is like if this if the title race was closer. If it was it, it was. I mean, it's obviously still mathematically possible, but the re- the pro- you know the <laughs> probability like, yeah, of it we, we all know it's actually yeah. happening. Yeah, the probability of it actually happening is slim to none. So if the title race was closer and they went out against Sevilla sort of in an unlucky kind of two-legged tie, I could see, I could definitely see him being there, you know, just because there is a, still a possibility of them gaining a major trophy. But Manchester United, for years now, since Alex Ferguson has left, have wanted serious progression. And they've paved that way with money, which is more than fine. I mean, I'm a Manchester City fan. I shouldn't be the one talking, but... They want results. They want the bigger trophies. And if Jose Mourinho can't do that this season, where they believe sort of the momentum and this this sort of thing is very important for, in a manager's life cycle. I think Jonathan Wilson a couple of seasons wrote about the life cycle of a manager and the effectiveness of the of the philosophy that he's trying to instill does have a very succinct and specific time limit, especially in the modern game. So if he's not able to do this this season, I have to imagine that there are more than a few managers that would be willing to accept the myriad of resources that are available to one once they've taken the Manchester United job. So I think given the fact that he's been knocked out of the Champions League, they'll give it to him until the end of the season, but I can't see him being there after the, the World Cup. It, it is a, it's a pretty insane, it's a pretty interesting situation, Chris. I think what hasn't helped Mourinho is, uh, of course, there's performance on the pitch, which perhaps we can come to, but his attitude off the pitch Especially, obviously, he came out after the game and he seemed more intent on defending himself than defending the club. He, of course, talked about how he was essentially saying, This is nothing new for Manchester United. I knocked Manchester United out with Porto not long ago. I knocked him out of Real Madrid not long ago either. You know, Manchester United is used to this. This is nothing new. And he's come out today in his press conference uh, ahead of uh, the weekend against the, the FA Cup against Brighton. He sort of elaborated on that and gone even more in depth to say, he has inherited a team which haven't succeeded in Europe for seven years. His performance in Europe with Manchester United, albeit being knocked out in the last season, is actually an improvement. I've inherited this situation. I'm doing the best I can. I've actually done better than anyone else in the last seven years. So uh, that's his defense of himself, which doesn't feel like uh, a way to endear himself to the Manchester United fans or a particularly, particularly logical way of, of addressing it. I think he surely should be fronting up and admitting his own errors and his own mistakes and uh, accepting that you know he's the one to blame for this. Those comments were, um, I think, ballsy. It is, it is being light. Um, in terms of 
and how you appraise them. <clears throat> what I think about him is is this. We look back at his his career very early as he thrust into the light through the Champions League with Porto. And one of the reasons that is, is so phenomenal, if you want to look at it that way, is because he was an underdog story. No one was expecting that Porto side to do that. No one was expecting um, them to beat Manchester United, especially at Old Trafford, Sir Alex Ferguson, all these things you can throw into it. You then look at his time with Inter. He gets the final, he beats a very good Bayern Munich side, but on the way to the final, he beats Barcelona, Pep Guardiola, this sort of pinnacle of European football. Again, what is he? He's the underdog. At Manchester United, he can't be the underdog because Manchester United view themselves through the lens of we are the biggest dog in the yard. And if they're not the biggest dog in the yard, they are the joint biggest alongside the likes of Real Madrid and Barcelona. It's very hard to cast them as an underdog in any context, let alone against Sevilla, who I think I read just the other day that, that three months of, of money that Manchester United accrue runs Sevilla for a year. That's the kind of disparity we're seeing between the opponents and, and Mourinho. And the problem is, is that he's struggling, I think, to conform to that new way. And you look even at his tactics, the the notion of getting a nil-nil away from home and then taking it back to Old Trafford and winning. I don't think that's a terrible plan, but you actually have to go at the opposition with some sort of vigour and, and force in the second leg. And the problem is he simply didn't do that. And I think actually if you look at the numbers, less and less this notion of, of sort of nil-nil games away from home is proving valuable. Actually, it's more beneficial to go out and try and, and get uh, goals away from home. You just need to look at, um, at Spurs, for an example. That was an instance where they had a two-goal lead Oh, essentially uh, uh, an advantage from the first leg through away goals that forced Juventus to then come out. And instead of trying to just grab a goal and nick it, Juventus really went for it. And I think this is the problem Mourinho has is that, yes, he inherited the situation that I think essentially what happened was the Moyes era came in, there was an, uh, a sort of self-belief and inertia from success that had gone before that galvanised them for the, uh, the first few months. And then by the end of it, I think, the sort of the glass had been shattered. It was all very emperor's new clothes, and the team realised we are not nearly as good as we think we are. And Sir Alex Ferguson had a very huge influence on making us a much better team. And I think, to a certain degree, they've never recovered that feeling of invincibility. And I think what he's trying to do, or what he needs to do, is almost restore that feeling of immortality. The problem is he's never going to do that with defensive reactionary football. And I think that's that's. At its core, one of the biggest issues hampering him right now is that he's not winning, which is his greatest definition, I think. He's not someone that comes in to build things. He's someone who comes in to put, slam trophies down on the desk and then walk out. And he's also not entertaining. So if he's doing neither, then what is he at, at this point? Because there's no legacy that he's leaving for his successor. He's not building something in the short term. And he's certainly not entertaining either. So he's in a very difficult position and genuinely to see him then come out and say this is nothing new for this football club that I read that and was genuinely shocked to read it because I thought you know what this, this is the kind of stuff that will get you the sack because it's it's just so stupid it is it's pretty stupid Nico I think it's fair to say uh today obviously I mentioned there he seems to have gone on somewhat of a run just before we started recording I, <laughs> I just don't understand. I think Chris sort of mentioned it there. Mourinho, it feels like Mourinho needs that underdog status almost to thrive. But also, 
trying to defend the exit from the Champions League to Sevilla, given the way he set out the team and given the way they perform, it is stupid, isn't it? This isn't the right way to, to approach this. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I wouldn't 100% agree with the, the underdog thing. I get what the point is, and I get the general sentiment of it is, but he, you know, he wasn't um, an underdog when he... Like, you're not an underdog when you have managed some of the biggest clubs in the world. You're not an underdog at Real Madrid or Porto or Chelsea. (laughs) No, but he was, though, because, because again, he he went up against Barcelona. He framed himself as, we are the underdog. You go into a game trying to make as few mistakes as possible. Well, what about last year, then? Because he he won the Europa League, and Manchester United were definitely not the underdog. Yeah, because because what did they do in the final, though? They sat off Ajax massively. It allowed Davinson Sanchez to have the ball. And essentially waited for him to make a mistake. To me, waiting for your opponent to make a mistake instead of exerting your dominance over them, that's the mentality of an underdog. Even yeah. Chelsea first time round, he goes in and says, look, I'm the special one. Essentially puts pressure on himself, has the established dominance of Manchester United. There, He goes in and rocks up as the new young pretender with no one really being sure of what even he is. And again, it allows him to be the underdog because he would have to turn around this this wonderful thing that, that Sir Alex Ferguson had built for Manchester United. And I think, yeah, he's he's always been that and he's always tried to 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 sort of build on that and fester on that. You know, goes back to Chelsea. Can he do it again? People are doubting him. That makes him the underdog. It's been his narrative throughout his entire career. And I think for the first he, time in his career, he's struggling to exert that. Yeah, I remember his second time at Chelsea as well. We described... Uh, the club is the little horse in the in the title race to try and again sort of establish that underdog <laughs> status. Um, but yeah, I mean, we talk about Mourinho a lot. We talk about Manchester United a lot, partly because he's, he's such a fascinating character. And he's going through such a fascinating sort of phase in his career. But yeah, his approach is just it, it's it's hard to it's hard to understand sometimes. I mean, yeah, I I think the the, the difficulty for him is is is. I think it's his his idea of how to play football has come at odds with, as Chris is like, right, rightly pointing out in some of the larger games, his his preferred approach. And and I just imagine that a player like Paul Pogba probably should have gone to a different manager. Not saying that Jose Mourinho is a bad manager or that he is. I mean, I would probably say he has poorly managed someone like Paul Pogba, but that was sort of the idea when they when they bought him, right? Is that it was he was supposed to be the very heart and soul of the team. The team was supposed to be built around him to accentuate his best qualities and for him to get the best out of others. And that simply hasn't happened. And I think that's probably largely down to the style of football that he's chosen to implement. And when he was at Juventus, it was a possession team. When he was, you know, when he was the when he was the player that we thought he was going to be, he was in a possession team. And ever since, he's been asked to be something else, which is okay, because that's how you make great players better. Kevin De Bruyne has become a more complete central midfielder by Pep Guardiola asking him to do things that he is uncomfortable with, which is kind of similar to what Jose Mourinho has done with Paul Pogba. But at the same time, I don't think he's given all of the players that he's been given at Manchester United the same opportunities to thrive or opportunities opportunities to thrive rather um because of the style of football that he wants to implement i think he works better with players who are maybe you know not expected you know they don't have the highest expectations like they can you can get the most out of them because they weren't going to be world beaters in the first place obviously he's had some fantastic players under him but i think the fact that he was given sort of the mantle to produce paul pogba and make him into the player that we all thought he was going to be was kind of what has 
made part of his Manchester United tenure so difficult for him because there was also that massive expectation um, for Manchester United and Adidas, which is, you know, this huge money-making duo in the, in the, in the football market. Um, and that, that mantle was given to him and he probably, I'm not saying, I'm not going to say he couldn't handle it, but I think that's, that's probably part of the reason why he struggled so much with like selection and, and putting his tactics forward. Hmm. Well, I mean, it was interesting watching the game uh, live on the pitch at the performances of some of the players there. Obviously, Alexis Sanchez seems to be struggling. Uh, Romelu Lukaku seems to have his ups and downs. I thought Paul Pogba was a particularly interesting one, Chris. Uh, he sort of came on in that second half, replacing Fellaini. Uh, there seemed to be this expectation from Manchester United fans that you know he was going to come on and sort of save the game, be it nil-nil at the time, and send Manchester United through. It was a pretty dire performance once again from Pogba, who obviously seemingly has these these issues with Mourinho. But, I mean, if you were a Manchester United fan now, surely... With both of their futures seemingly up in the air, Mourinho and Pogba, you'd sh- surely rather see the back of Mourinho than Pogba at this point, if it came to a decision between the two. Yeah, because you've got more money sunk into um, Pogba. I think it's a cost-sunk analysis at the end of the day. And and look, Pogba is the future of that football club. And and to be frank, I think Pogba's got more scope for change, to be to be brutally honest. And I don't think Mourinho is, is going to adapt the way that he is um, anytime soon and I think honestly you, you look at um, even just his performances comparative to the way he was at Juventus I think there was a lot of um, false perception about about Pogba I think it, it's fueled by this sort of highlight real culture that we've got where I remember watching uh, compilations of his skills and you would see moments from games where he had been largely anonymous for Juventus. I want to say there was maybe one against... It could be Torino. I know they were playing in the the pink kit. And he did a few skills during the course of the game. But if you actually watch the game, he created the square root of nothing. He did very little overall to actually influence the game outside of that. And it was just a poor performance from him. And that's the problem is that we sort of construct, and I'm not saying that Manchester United by any means just went and watched a few highlight reels. I know for a fact they'll have gone to see the lad play. But it's this idea that we construct this sort of false image of someone based on the fact that we can take a six-second clip because that's all the attention span we've got. I think for Pogba at this stage, being young, being not so defensively minded, not so defensively rounded out, he needs a coach who's going to work with him. And Look, I, I don't want to frame everything around Manchester City, Man United. Just look across the city. Look what De Bruyne has, has morphed into. A more complete midfielder. Someone who doesn't seem weak mentally anymore. Who doesn't uh, just create goals. He scores big goals. He dictates games. He floats around the pitch. That's what I'd be wanting from Pogba. But it's, it's how you get to that point. Because obviously you're not going to entice Guardiola. So you need to find someone who almost has the... The, the wherewithal, the, the attention to detail and the ability to come in and work with him um, on, a, on a very individual level. And what about Sanchez, Nico? Because this is a player who's obviously uh, signed with, with great fanfare for Manchester United, learned to play the piano, especially just for the transfer, um, but hasn't really performed on the pitch uh, the stats I saw doing the round after the game against Sevilla was that he lost the ball for 42 times uh, within the 90 minutes, the most for an individual player in the Champions League this season. It's obviously not quite working out for him at Manchester United. Where's it? Where's it? Where's it going wrong? I think 
<laughs> where it went wrong was the was the transfer. <laughs> um, as you highlighted there, he he lost the ball a ton of times. I mean, this is the player that we know Alexis Sanchez is. He's a brilliant attacking player when the circumstances allow for it to be, and he is he can create things obviously on his own. But this is like I said, this is a player that we know Alexis Sanchez to be. We know that he is a black hole for possession. We know he likes to take other players on. Um, he's a creative player for assisting other people, but. I, I just think that there was a larger expectation for him to, to create more now that he was going to be surrounded by a different team and better players, supposedly, and stuff like that. When initially, I think there is a lot, there, from his time at Arsenal, there was a lot of misconception as to what Alexis Sanchez actually did for Arsenal. I think he was looked upon as like this hero that was the savior of the team, that was the only one trying, when in actuality, it was a player that. that did a lot of things wrong on the pitch tactically that made his team look worse. And I think that kind of carries over. He is a someone that tries far too much. And as someone that's getting older, getting into the upper echelons of his career, is only going to hurt him going forward. So I'm not saying that is it is by any stretch of the imagination a bad transfer. I think you can still get the best out of him. But those kind of things need to be accounted for. And I think there is even more selection problems when it comes to, as I was talking about before with Paul Pogba and Jose Mourinho, when it comes to Alexis Sanchez, because you have to account for a player that is going to do things incorrectly. You have to account for a player that's going to probably ruin your defensive sh- uh, shape to a certain extent and be a black hole when you want to have possession and take take on far too much when he just doesn't have that success rate in, in taking people on anymore. So I think it's more accounting for Alexis Sanchez that maybe Manchester United and equally Jose Mourinho did not do properly when, when they made this transfer as opposed to him being actually you know bad. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrowcom slash ACAST. That's burrowcom slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. On to the questions then. A few juicy questions for us today. Uh, the first one comes from James Reed. What is going on with Neymar? Um, obviously, it was confirmed last week that PSG were going out of the Champions League after another defeat to Real Madrid. It felt like it was supposed to be their season, Chris, to maybe go to that next level. Of course, it now looks like Unai Emery's future of the club it will be over at the end of the season. But there is that growing sense that perhaps Neymar's future of the club um, may not be so certain. Real Madrid, of course, constantly linked with the Brazilian. Um, what do you think is going on with Neymar? Do you think it's, t- it's time for him to move once again? Do you think he needs to, to stick it out at PSG? There's seemingly something 
not quite right. Obviously, he's a player who, I don't want to say he has an astronomically sized ego, but it does seem that way from the, the stories you hear from behind the scenes, obviously making him a difficult character to deal with. Could perhaps Real Madrid be a better a better fit for both the player and the and the club? I I think if he wants it, I will. I think he has an astronomical ego. I think he's someone that constantly needs to be indulged. You look at sort of the the state of his his birthday parties and all this kind of stuff. The fact that again he is uh, someone that puts sort of demands on the 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 club in terms of um, of what he wants what he feels is acceptable the fact that there's been even just talk of ructions in the dressing room um, I don't think there's don't think there's smoke without fire to that extent and look he he very much forced through a move from Barcelona he was the one that that drove the car on that one and I think as, as we talked about in the summer it was because he wanted to be the star attraction he didn't want to be you know the the Messi show with support acts of Neymar and so far he wanted to lead things that's all well and good, but it comes with a stress and a pressure and a stress and a pressure that I'm not entirely sure if, if he feels all that comfortable shouldering anymore. Now, the, the problem with the whole situation is that his options, as brilliant as he is, are limited because of cost. It's not like Wayne Rooney when he was leaving Manchester United. This is a case of who's going to pay 200, 250, whatever PSG demand, because remember, release clauses are... Uh, not applicable in in France. They don't allow them, so it has to be a deal agreed with PSG. Now, I don't. I'm not saying that PSG can't be strong armed, but they're going to want at least a return on investment, or, or at least their money back. And so you're looking at maybe Real Madrid as a possible uh, destination there. But again, it, the the, th- the thing is, you know, you have to remember for those who keep trying to run away from their problems, they need to be reminded that their problems will always catch up with them. And and for him, it's been a case of professionalism and sort of what Rabiot alluded to after the Real Madrid tie that it's all well and good scoring eight past Dijon but if, if you're not going to come up in the big games then it, it means nothing and mm. and really I don't think across the the entirety of the first leg he did come up when needed mm. you know there was it was a, a performance that I thought was lacking and overall I think in in general he asks to Almost put this season behind him. Yes, Emery is not good enough as a coach. I don't think he's been good enough for a while. He's not nearly uh, aggressive enough in terms of leading a game. He's far too reactionary. Get a new coach in and then actually give it a good try. Because, yeah, you'll win the league this year. That's Look, the only reason Monaco really won the league is because PSG fell on its arse last season. So it's it's now about him actually going out and, and almost doing the things that he set out to do and sort of breaking the, the established dominance and... and elevating PSG towards the power that it claims it wants to be. He's, of course, the most expensive player in the world. Hasn't quite lived up to that tag, Nico. As Chris sort of says that Unai Emery, perhaps not but, the, gu- the man but to But why get- not, if I, can, if I can get into that? But, like, why, why is he not? Because for me, I think he's had a pretty good season pretty at, good. At, at PSG. And besides the fact, I think he performed pretty well in the, in the first leg and he can't really help getting injured in the in the second leg I mean that's not really his fault so I think do you think uh, would you say that Unai Emery is the man to uh, continue the project at PSG though and help take it to another level with Neymar at the forefront of that or do you think they need to look beyond him now because it seems like he, as Chris was just there he's, he's struggled to, to manage what is a very difficult situation with Neymar and his ego seemingly defining and uh, leading this team in many ways 
I think the difficulty for most managers is not necessarily. I mean, I'm not going to comment on on Neymar's ego because I don't know him. I don't think. I, I really don't know if he's he's an egotistical player. I don't think he is. I'd like to think he isn't. I get the feeling from his moves and from interviews that I've seen uh, from him. I think he's just a, a really talented player that has realized his position in the world, realized the opportunities that he has, and is just trying to to have as much fun as physically possible. I think it's okay. It's more than okay that you know he didn't want to spend his entire career at, at Barcelona, and he you know if he wants to move from PSG to Real Madrid. I'm, I mean, that's fine if, you know, I understand the sentiment that, you know, maybe he should try to dig in his heels a bit and win something with PSG given, you know, the the, the transfer surrounding that. But I, I just think, um, you know, I, I think the, the difficulty with him is that we've seen the best, we've kind of seen the best name. It was the it was the Barcelona that won the treble. It was when he was being more uh, defensively conscious of the effect that he had on the rest of his team. Him, Messi, and Suarez when they linked up and when they were all sort of two-way players that was one of the best teams that we've ever seen and, and the trophy showed that they won the treble um and the difficulty with that is that it's going to be difficult for coaches to uh recreate that but for me I, I think he's he's trying to live up live up to that because i think the member of the attacking trio at psg that was less defensively sound um in the first league against real madrid was Kylian mbappe so for me he showed up I think he obviously he can't help the, the the fact that he got injured in the second leg, and I imagine he'll he'll stick it out at PSG and try to win something. I do think Unai Emery is the guy um, that can take them there, but he probably won't be there next season, unfortunately. Um, at the very least, Neymar did make a, a beautiful uh, and touching tribute to Stephen Hawking, uh, who sadly passed away this week. I'm not sure if you've seen that, guys. I highly recommend it. <laughs> do check that out. It's uh, not in any way inappropriate whatsoever. Uh, let's finish up by rattling through some of the questions that you guys have been sending in on Twitter. Uh, first up, Brad Usher says, do you think undeservedly anyone missed out on the England squad that was announced this week for the upcoming friendlies? In my opinion, says Brad, Ryan Sessegnon, uh, the young Fulham player, and Glenn Murray deserved a chance. Uh, Glenn Murray, I think, statistically speaking, is the, the best performing English striker in the Premier League right now. Um, I suppose you might say John Joe Shelby, Chris, has been outrageously snubbed by Gareth Southgate. I'd have jumped for Jim Ellis first, if I'm honest. Yeah, that's, that's, um, that's probably more fair. I think you just need look at <clears throat> you just need look at the form or the statistics when he's out with that Newcastle team and when he's in it, he makes a, a tremendous difference. And he's a leader first and foremost. I think that to me is is something that England is somewhat lacking. And his ability to come in and marshal players who are, in most cases, his senior, I think is, has been incredibly impressive. Yeah, I think Shelby's played incredibly well. Um, I'd argue. Again, perhaps with a black and white tint to it. He's done more than Wilshire has of late. I thought he was magnificent against Manchester United. Produced another sort of great pass in the build-up for a goal against Bournemouth. And then two assists against Swan- uh, Southampton. Excuse me. I think, honestly, for me, and this is, is it a criticism, perhaps, the England team has rarely ever been picked on form. Because I think if it was, it would look markedly different every single time it was, was named. Um, and I think unfortunately while I'm not subscribing to a conspiracy theory I do think there's some credence to the fact that certain clubs are looked upon more favourably than others I don't think I've seen Southgate at St James's part of the season Um, not that that's essentially could watch the games after but I don't think those players are going to get the recognition unfortunately it's up to them to keep performing of course there's still a couple of months before he has to name his, his full squad um, 
But I think the fact that uh, Welbeck was one that jumped out, Livermore, the fact they're involved and and other players aren't, it's um, yeah, it's it's confusing. And I think in in general, it tends to fuel the apathy towards the the national team in general. Fair, yeah. Danny Welbeck getting in over uh, over Glenn Murray is uh, is a strange one, I think, to many people. Um, question here from James. Halloran, number three, from a Saints fan, he says, what are the benefits and issues of having Mark Hughes as manager, Nico? Um, Mark Hughes, uh, as, as James said, a new Southampton manager, somewhat of a surprising appointment. Again, not the most inspiring name um, that the club could, uh, could appoint. Uh, do you think he's going to help Southampton avoid the drop? Are there any benefits to, uh, to Mark Hughes being your manager? Um... <laughs> I think we probably need Elliot Hackney to come on and, and talk about Mark Hughes a little bit. but um, he doesn't have the I mean, most favorable opinion of Mark Hughes, <laughs> I think it's fair to say. I think we have to judge Southampton on the majority of the, the decisions that they made over the past couple of years. Um, and the majority of those decisions have been correct. So however unfavorably we see Mark Hughes right now, I still think there are Do obvious... You- there are some positives we can we can draw from having Marquise as the manager because what we've seen at Southampton for the past couple of seasons is uh, um, an insistence with a specific style of, of play, which is kind of defensive pressing and then hitting teams on the counterattack. They have not think- been successful in doing that, so maybe employing a manager like Marquise would bring a more attacking style of football. To Do you think Southampton. they've made the right decisions, Nico? Because to me it feels like they're a club who have sort of <laughs> lost their way in a sense. I mean, the, the decision that immediately springs to mind is, is that of getting rid of Claude Puel, uh, who is doing a, yeah, a, a good job at Leicester. Yeah, I disagreed with that at the time. I think he's uh, he was a really good manager at Southampton. He got eighth and to a League Cup final that was probably incorrectly um, decided by some refereeing decisions and, and probably could have gone to Southampton. So if we look at that season, you know, that's that's a complete success in their eyes. Eighth and a League Cup. I mean, uh, but they sacked, sacked him anyways and then went after Pellegrino, which was a pretty another pretty decent uh, managerial appointment. But it didn't happen to work out for whatever reason. I think um, the performances were a lot different. But, yeah, I, I think for the most part still they have made the majority of the right decisions because we have to remember they are a very small club. They have experienced a very steady but still sustainable rise um, to the Premier League, and it's really about preserving that. And I think they they still are in good hands. We scratch our heads at this decision of Mark Hughes now. I don't imagine that it's one that they're going to be uh, – I don't think he's going to be there for too long. I hope not, but I, I still believe in the in the brains. <laughs> you give it a week. Um, I still believe in the in the brains at, at the at the board at Southampton. He could be the first manager to get two clubs relegated in one season if uh, Stoke and Southampton go down. I really so, hope not, because that because if you look at Southampton's team on paper, they are they are really good actually. He'll make he'll make the history books there. That would be quite incredible, uh, guys. That does bring an end to the front three podcast. Hope you've enjoyed it. A uh, long overdue podcast, as I mentioned. Please do get involved and rate and review the podcast on iTunes by clicking on the link in the description of this very podcast. We will be back on Monday to talk all the FA Cup action. Spurs, of course, in action against Swansea. They're definitely, definitely going to beat. Fingers crossed. Even without Harry Kane, uh, we've also got some exciting games as well that we were talking about on Monday. Until then. Nico, where can the good people, where can the whole find you? They can find me on Twitter at Nico underscore O Morales. What about you, Chris? Uh, At K-H-E-N-E-A-G-E and also running at Lozcast.
<laughs> Beautiful stuff. Uh, guys, you can follow me on Twitter at Adam Boltwood. Have a wonderful weekend and we'll see you on Monday. That's a magic number. Yes, it is. It's the magic number. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.